Out of all of the familiar and perhaps very famous texts of Scripture that we often turn to come Christmas time, it might feel odd or perhaps a little bit strange to turn to the book of Titus. After all, Paul's New Testament letter to one of his disciples, if you will, to his true child in the faith, as he calls him, isn't likely in your top five of most Christmassy Bible passages. Uh, which is uh, unfortunate, but it's nonetheless true, I think. I think I say it's unfortunate because I think Paul here very clearly, if you read from about this section to uh, into chapter number three, uh, very much has in mind this idea of Christmas, or we could call it Advent, even if he doesn't necessarily use those words. And I think what Paul has in mind here perfectly captures and encapsulates what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. But I think also more importantly, I think it captures or we could say encapsulates what Advent is supposed to get us to think about. What it's supposed to remind us of. Even though, uh, even though we are, yes, we are a Baptist church this morning and we haven't always been in our history very eager to follow anything in the way of sort of a formal liturgy. And that's, that's okay, it's fine. I think it's important to understand how, um, how significant Advent is itself to our faith. Advent, of course, if, you're, if you know anything about other churches and the way they do their liturgical years or whatever, um, Advent is always the first season, so to speak, on the church's liturgical calendar, if you will. Beginning with the, 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 the three or four Sundays before Christmas Day, the church is often brought all kinds of readings and worship services that always remind them of the birth of Jesus, his arrival, his advent, which is literally what that word means. And from there, from Advent, the church moves into what is called Epiphany, and then into Lent, and then into Easter, and then into Pentecost, and then all the way back again to Advent. And that, that movement, that, that season, those, those sort of holy days of the church, wherever they are followed... They collectively invite the church to sort of uh, hear the story of their faith from the birth of Jesus all the way to, we could say, the birth of the church. And the more that we are reminded of the story and our place in it, the more we are fortified or, or built up to live by faith and not by sight. And the important thing is that it always starts with the season called Advent. And as I understand it, Advent is made up of three movements. We could say three little seasons that sort of that encapsulate this season of Advent, if you will. They are called the waiting, the appearing, and I would call it the saving. And I would say, oh, over the next three Sundays, we're going to be looking at each of these movements, as you, if you will, as we find them within Paul's words to Titus, but also as we find them within the, the nativity story itself from Luke chapter 2, that, that story that we all know and that we all love. And Lord willing, I think we'll be able to see how each of these ingredients, ingredients, waiting, appearing, and saving, have always been foundational and crucial to our faith. You know, that phrase from Jude, the faith that was once delivered for all the saints. That's always been sort of made up or comprised of these elements. These elements of waiting and waiting for the appearing. And at the appearing, we are made to hear how we are saved. It always starts with this season called the waiting. 
Which brings me to verse 13 of the text that we read. Notice how Paul writes, waiting for our blessed hope. These words are just brimming with meaning and brimming with relation to this very season of the year that we are in. Waiting it literally could be translated as anticipating. And it has this connotation, it has this sort of connection, if you will, of, of waiting sort of on the edge of your seat in eager expectation of something. That's what this word is just brimming with. It's a fitting illustration, I think. That this anticipation uh, that we could, we could think of perhaps the, the anticipation that fills a delivery room where a mom is awaiting the birth of her child. Mom and dad, you know, are, they're sitting there and they're, they're on the edge of their seats and rightfully so. They're expecting uh, with joyful anticipation the birth of this newborn. That's, uh, of course, an element and an ingredient of this waiting that we find here in this particular passage. But there's also another aspect, another sort of way that, that we could look at this waiting, if you will. And it's not quite as joyful. It's not quite as, as exciting. Because sometimes waiting for something can feel like languishing, can't it? Languishing. It can feel like you're just wasting away. You're just sitting there and you're just wilting. It feels like you're being forgotten, so to speak. To languish while you wait is to, is to ache or is to grieve. It's, it's the feeling of being forgotten. And I think this is what we often, most often associate with this idea of waiting since nobody likes to wait for anything. Think about that for a minute. I think this is so, uh, so incredibly true of our, our current culture, of our current climate, if you will. We brew instant coffee. We cook instant rice and we pick up instant food and we turn on our televisions for instant entertainment. And we follow diet plans that offer and promise instant results. Maybe you've already bought one waiting to start it in the new year. We hate waiting for anything. There's one minute plans for almost everything that you can think of around us. And a society that, and I think that's because our society tries to maximize everything. We try to maximize every single second. This reminds me of, of, of the stand-up comedian Brian Regan, who has this joke in one of his stand-up specials where he talks about the fact that, that Pop-Tarts have microwave instructions on them, which is just kind of silly. Because usually you put Pop-Tarts in a toaster and he makes the joke that if, you, if you're trying to zap fry your, your Pop-Tarts in a microwave, you might want to ease up your schedule. And I think that's, it's funny, but it's also true. <laughs> that if you're so busy that you can't even toast a Pop-Tart, you might be too busy. <laughs> I think it's just a good referendum on sort of the world in which we are living. The world in which we are inhabiting. Waiting in a, in a world that tries to maximize productivity. Waiting is the worst form of inefficiency imaginable. And we don't like waiting for anything. And yet also think about it. We are, we are often forced to do just that. We sit in waiting rooms all the time. We wait in traffic. And we are waited on by waiters in restaurants. It's almost inescapable with this sense of waiting. And of course, what's the, those are kind of silly illustrations, but what's even more sort of frustrating when we wait is when we are forced to wait for bigger things. Like that promotion at your job that you are very certain that you deserve. 
or waiting to grow up so you can get your driver's license and start being independent (laughs) or waiting for the right one to come along and feel like forever. Waiting for those things, right, doesn't ever, it rarely feels like this joyful, eager anticipation. Waiting for those things often feels like languishing. It feels just frustrating and it feels defeating. Feels as if we are waiting for what will never arrive. And the point is, Advent as a season as a season for the church, it includes both types of waiting. It includes that, that eager, excited, joyful anticipation, but it also includes and it recognizes that here in the midst, while we are waiting, there are some things that we are languishing for and languishing over. There are some things that just feel frustrating. The season of Advent anticipates This arrival, this advent of God in the flesh. And it's preceded by this period of waiting. And it's a season of waiting that's filled with the ache of what is. While also being filled with the hope of what's to come. And I think there's no better figure, there's no better character that that shows us what this looks like. That illustrates this for us than the character of Simeon. Go with me to Luke chapter number 2. The very famous biblical account of Jesus' birth. The one that we often read during this time of year. And notice how Simeon is described. As you might know, Simeon is this man who's in the temple. And he's described as a man who's righteous and devout. But he's also described as waiting for the consolation of of Israel. Notice verse 25, Luke 2:25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. I think it's telling this description of this man Because although we are not told his age, generally and most often, Simeon is depicted as an elderly man. As a man who has had many years behind him, so to speak. Which is also just to say, he is a man who's been waiting for a long time. Is sort of what he's known for. We don't know when. We don't know how, but as we read in the next verse, he was told by the Spirit of God himself that his waiting would not be in vain. His waiting would be worth it as he's given this incredible privilege. Notice verse 26. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. This is an amazing piece of information that helps us understand this man, Simeon. Because like any Jew, like any one who's grown up in synagogue, grown up hearing and reading all of those old stories from all the prophets and learning about his own history as a person of the Lord Jesus himself, Simeon was, we could say, a faithful waiter. The religious tradition of the Jews is encapsulated, it's sort of rooted in this idea of waiting or anticipating the Messiah that would come from the heavens. That's what this word, this term means. The consolation of Israel is sort of a euphemism, if you will, for the Messiah. For the one who would come and put everything back together again. That would bring everything back into peace, into shalom, if you will. This idea stretches back far 
If you read the history of God's people, back from the earliest days when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, all the way through the days of the prophets, the hope of every Jew was tethered to this story that has been told long ago and has continued throughout the ages, that one day the seed of the woman would come and appear and crush the head of the serpent. This is the story that had defined the people of God. This is the story of their salvation, their deliverance from bondage, from death and darkness and sin. This was their comfort, comfort when they were in places of weariness and exile. This is what the people of God were waiting for, for centuries, for thousands of years. It has, is the thing that defined them, if you will. It was the essence of their hope that they were waiting, waiting for this one. If you don't believe me, you can turn to several verses of Scripture. I'm not going to invite you to turn to them, but I will invite you to read them, write them down. All the way back to the days of Jacob, when on his deathbed, what does he say? Genesis 49:18. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. And this waiting seeps into the days of David, King David in the Psalms, who repeatedly throughout the Psalms encourages the congregation of Israel to wait for the Lord. Psalm 25, verse 3. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. Psalm 25, verse 5. You are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Psalm 25, verse 21. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Psalm 27, verse 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Psalm 37, verse 9. Those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Psalm 39, verse 7. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Psalm 40, verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. Psalm 130, verse 5. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. And this waiting even stretches and becomes even more pronounced in those days of exile when Israel was forced out of their home. Yes, by, uh, by, as a result of their own rebellion against the Lord. But even in exile, the prophets spoke to them about this waiting. Especially the prophet Isaiah who says in Isaiah 25 verse 9. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. In Isaiah 26 verse 8. O Lord, we wait for you. In Isaiah 33 verse 2. O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning. Our salvation in the time of trouble. Do you think that the scriptures are trying to tell us something? (laughs) They're trying to get us and instill in us this this picture of the people of God who are waiting for the Lord's Christ, as Luke 2 says. Waiting for the Messiah. Waiting for the one who would bring rest and deliverance to the people of God. This has been the posture of God's people for eons, for ages. And it's where we are even too here this morning. And the point is, all of those 
All of those ages of waiting. If you read the Old Testament, it's a, uh, it's, a, it's a collection of books and writings that speak about waiting for the Lord. And what were those days filled with? All of those days of waiting. All of those years and decades and centuries of waiting. You can read the Old Testament. It hasn't always been filled with rainbows and unicorns. It's not always been a sunny sort of season of waiting for the people of God. They've had moments of rejoicing. But more often than not, they've been languishing. They've been wilting. They've been wearied by their waiting. And yet throughout all of those long years... God's people had found an abundance of reasons to feel forgotten, to get frustrated. And it was as if their waiting was in vain. And I think that's why this this book that we have in front of us called the Bible has so many encouragements and reminders that we who wait on the Lord will not be put to shame. That our waiting is not in vain. That the Lord will do and fulfill exactly everything as he's promised to. Despite what the circumstances look like. Despite what is surrounding us. And this is where we come back to Simeon. Who's been waiting perhaps even before he was given this word from the spirit. That he wouldn't die before he sees the Lord's Christ. So he imagines Simeon growing up in synagogue. Being a good Jew. Reading and learning about the Messiah that would to come. And he has in his mind's eye a, a, a very particular image of what that would look like. And then suddenly, and he, perhaps when he's older and his age. He's given this promise that he's not going to die until he sees that come to fruition. He's given this word, this word of promise from the Spirit that he's not going to die until he sees the Messiah. Now, every time he goes to the temple, you can imagine what is filling him. Is this going to be the day? I can't wait to, to hopefully see him. Hopefully, this will be the day. When I'll lay my eyes on the one, on the Messiah. Simeon's waiting, as you can imagine, was... The waiting that was filled with with joy and eager anticipation and expectation of what was to come. But even still, we can imagine that Simeon's waiting was still sometimes less than hopeful. Simeon was living during the days of fierce oppression and persecution of God's people. With almost all of Judea in these days being tyrannized by the people of Rome. In that way, we could understand that Simeon had no doubt seen with his own eyes, had no doubt witnessed, perhaps even felt himself, the ruthlessness and the cruelty and the brutality of the Roman occupation of the land of Israel. Israel was languishing during these days. This was a period of deep darkness for the people of God. God had gone silent it had been 400 years uh, to this point but since anyone had heard from the Lord. Easily they could have felt like they were forgotten. Yet some people were still waiting. And as Simeon would hear experience, his waiting was not in vain. Look again, Luke 2.25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. 
And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. That you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. What a scene. He goes into the temple filled with the Spirit and somehow the Spirit tells him that this little month-old baby that is in front of him, that these two little peasant parents are carrying, that that's the one. That's the one he's been waiting for. And after years of waiting and waiting and waiting, after years of not knowing when this would actually come to fruition, now finally he was seeing the consolation of Israel right in front of him. And more than just see him, now Simeon has this incredible privilege and this incredible moment where he's holding him in his arms. He's embracing the very one for whom he had waited. A little baby cooing in his arms. That was all the evidence he needed that every word of God would be fulfilled. As he says in this prayer over this baby and over its parents, that this is the one who would bring salvation, not just to the people of Israel, but to the world. He would be a light in the darkness for everyone who was living in the darkness. And I think Simeon in this way is such a profound example to you and to me. And the way in which he waited for his blessed hope, so to speak, informs us how we ought to wait for ours as well. Go back to Titus chapter 2. That verse, number 13. Paul says, waiting for our blessed hope. A a phrase that very much could be descriptive of Simeon himself. But he continues, uh, our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. What is Paul telling Titus to wait for? What is he encouraging him to, to wait for this blessed hope? Well, he's not actually referring to the first advent. He's not referring to the first Noel and to that very first Christmas that we've just been alluding to. He's actually referring to the second advent. The second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's alluding to that day at the end of all things, at the end of all time, when the Lord himself will appear in in the fullness of his might and his majesty and his glory. He won't appear this time as a little infant in his mother's womb. This time he's going to appear as the king of kings and the lord of lords. And he's telling Titus and by proxy the church that that is how we are to wait for that day. See, Paul's words are not just for Titus, they are for us. They are for the church of every single age. And that we too are invited to wait like Simeon on and for our blessed hope. The hope that the Lord will and yes is coming soon. 
Even if that means that our waiting, even if that means our waiting is brimming with heartache and with pain, even though at times our waiting might be a mix of rejoicing and sometimes languishing, even if, the, if it means that all around us there, there seems to be mounting reasons upon reasons to question what God has said, to question what God has promised. Even though this world seems to be growing darker and wearier by the day. Despite all of that. What does Advent tell us? Advent reminds us. That in the words of Isaiah. Blessed are all those who wait for him. See this season of Advent. It reminds us of the first So that we can have certainty and confidence in the second. It reminds us of what happened at that first appearing of our Lord and Savior. So that we as the church, as the family, the people of God. We might be built up and uplifted and have certainty and confidence as we wait for that second advent. And second appearing of when our Savior will come to take home. It gives us clarity. It gives us certainty. It gives us confidence. Notice what Paul says. Training us, verse 12, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Waiting for our blessed hope. He's describing the way in which this good news helps us to wait. The good news of What Advent reminds us of. The good news of Advent of course is none other than the good news of great joy. That will be for all people as the angels say. And because that good news is true. We can wait. Wait living lives of self-service. Of self-sacrifice. Of faith. Not trying to retain and be miserly with what we have. We can live not for worldly passions, but for heavenly pursuits with a mind that is set on the things above, not on the things of this age. Why? Because the first advent was true. This is the good news that tells us that the light of the world has come to push back the darkness. And in that we can wait with joy. Despite what our, ma- what our waiting might be filled with. Because just as God fulfilled his word for those who are waiting for his first advent. So too will he fulfill his word for those who are waiting for his second. And this I think is why this first little ingredient of advent is so important for us. Because as we wait, we are invited to come face to face, to be confronted with our own frailty, with our own frustrations, with our own weakness. It reminds us that this world is sick with sin and death and darkness. It doesn't take long to see that. It doesn't take long to notice that. But then again, it also reminds us that It is precisely those who are sick that Christ came to rescue. That Christ came to save in his own words. Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. This is where we are my friends. We are like Simeon. We are in the waiting. 
In the time of tension and frustration and sorrow, that time of anticipation that is sometimes filled with languishing, that is sometimes filled with heartache and pain. But our blessed hope, the hope that we are waiting for, is this glorious fact that the Lord of all glory, the Lord of all grace that Paul is here describing, will one day arrive and he will bring us home to be with him forever. And on that day when he appears, like the carol says, our souls will be filled with a thrill of hope as the weary world is going to be made to rejoice in its Savior and yonder will break a new and glorious morn. And then we too, like Simeon before us, will be embraced and we will embrace the one for whom we have waited, Christ the Lord. Until then, we have the season of Advent to remind us. To remind us of the good news that meets us in the waiting. That meets us in these seasons where it doesn't feel joyful. It doesn't feel often exciting. It can feel frustrating. It's the good news that meets us right where we are. And it welcomes us to wait and to sing while we wait. It is well with my soul. That is a song that can be sung only by those who know and trust and believe that the first advent was true. And as such, everything that came after it is true as well. That all of the Lord's words are certain and abiding and not one of them will ever fail. My friends, as you are in this waiting, are you waiting in hope? Are you waiting in frustration? Are you being distracted by all of the circumstances and the surrounding elements of this world that can get us bogged down and despairing? It's easy to do. My friends, like Simeon before us and like the church for ages, we are a people who are waiting on our blessed hope. And indeed, it is not hope that is in vain. It is hope that is true and certain. Have confidence this morning that as you wait, you wait for the return of the Lord himself. For the return of the true king who is coming, who is coming for us, for his family, for his church, for his bride. That is what we are waiting for. That is what we are eagerly and excitedly expecting. This is the season of waiting, but it's waiting that is not in vain. It is waiting that is filled with the good news of great joy. Let us pray.